You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Inside the Musicians Guild. I'm your host, Steve Choi, and as always, I thank you for being here and I thank you for listening. So, as you may or may not have noticed, my release schedule has been a little bit more spotty lately, but uh, I'm hoping to return to a weekly release pretty soon. I'm compiling more episodes to work on, and during that process, I've been able to talk to a lot of people that I go particularly far back with. And naturally, as always with me and on this podcast, uh, you get to relive those memories and enjoy, you know, even smiling upon heartbreaks from the past. And it also makes me think a lot about my first tours, which is also a subject which comes up often, I think, as a theme here. And with the people that I get to talk to. Uh, And I just wonder if the way I began touring is a way of touring that can still exist on such a large scale as it did before. I mean, in the late 90s, the early aughts, there were so many bands who had the means and there was enough... Uh, I guess, venues and people wanting to put on shows that whether it's just around your state or around your side of the country, a lot of people were just getting into vans, some of them 15 passengers, some of them minivans, getting their trailers going, you know, some of them large, some of them small, and just booking a string of shows and going. If you are a non-young person like me, You'll remember zines and uh, particularly larger zines like Maximum Rock and Roll, MRR, maybe Punk Planet. But Maximum Rock and Roll, MRR, put out this sort of handbook and it was released to all the record stores and in the magazine section. And I would go to the last record store in Santa Rosa. And I would pick up this thing called Book Your Own Fucking Life. That's actually what it said on the cover. Book Your Own Fucking Life. And this book was literally a compilation pre-internet of all the venues and promoters, music stores, restaurants, record stores, places to crash, and resources for bands to set up tours. And for people, you know, in their respective areas to, you know, get hit up and have more opportunities for putting on shows and events. Obviously, with the internet now, we're so far beyond something like that. And it's definitely archaic and outdated. But when I think back about the analog of that, you know, just how analog it was literally uh it still is romantic in my mind i think it's cool that people had to mail stuff and 
correspond through letters and uh you know shortly after came you know aim and all that stuff but uh it was a cool time i mean the fact that i went on my first tour and the band had one cell phone that lived in an ammo box under the front seat didn't even stay on it was there for an emergency you know and i think we only ended up having to use it once on tour uh for a tow this band that i went out with for my first time it's a band called slow gherkin from santa cruz i was 19 totally such a young kid who didn't know anything and i have so much love and respect for all the guys in slow gherkin for allowing me to kind of be around them and learn some things about how to be on the road and i'm also especially grateful for getting to go on my first tour with such a fun and positive group of people they had an old dodge 15 passenger van orange and white they affectionately named it the creamsicle they also had your standard one axle wells cargo trailer but one of the older versions in tow they had built this really cool loft system whereas most bands will take out the back two bench seats and then build a platform you know and you sleep on that that's the what's called the loft bands who didn't want a trailer they would put all their gear underneath it so you'd be sleeping on top of uh, all your gear on this platform and then bands who did have a trailer uh you had two sections of sleeping space where as you could sleep four people, two on top and two on the bottom. That's what RX did. Uh, we had a trailer. But Slow Gherkin had back then built this loft system, which allowed uh, five or six people to sleep up there with like a third level right at the back. And it was like when you were up there, you got this view out the back window and although you were staring at their trailer, their trailer wasn't too tall, and you still got a really good view. I remember laying back there, uh, yeah, driving through Wyoming. I feel like I'm always talking about driving through Wyoming, but, I mean, it's a pretty gigantic open section of the 80, and you get some pretty majestic views. So uh, it's also one of those areas in the country where you're generally not stopping to play a show, so you're just doing a really long drive day. But Slow Gherkin had this cool loft system, had it covered with carpet and everything. And uh, yeah, I thought it was so neat, especially never having gone on a van tour. We had like the complete experience where we were staying with people after shows. And, uh, you know, we were on tour with Edna's Goldfish and the stereo. Um, Brian Diaz from Edna's Goldfish, who is now a tech and works in production for a lot of bands. Uh, he'll be appearing on the show pretty soon, and I was really stoked to get to talk to him. But anyway, we were on tour with those bands, and we still had so much fun outside of playing the shows. There's a lot of bands that go on tour that uh, kind of keep their focus, or they're not really like active or into having fun. They kind of just like to do the tour thing you know, go to the hotel or stay at somebody's house, but they're not really looking for activities outside of that. 
Slow Gherkin was great because they were always into like having fun and doing stuff. I remember at the beginning of that tour, within the first week, we were driving through uh, South Dakota and we were approaching Rapid City. Uh, that's the name of the city, Rapid City, South Dakota. And the sun was going down. So there was tons of bugs out. I mean, in that area, the size of some of these grasshoppers and, and flying bugs is just, it's crazy. Uh, if you live there, you know. If you've been there, you know. But we were approaching Rapid City, and it was getting pretty dark at the end of dusk, and the headlights of the van go out. So, obviously, we pull over at the next exit, and it happens to be uh, this kind of just desolate exit where it was just one fireworks shop and a gas station, I think, down the frontage road, up another exit. So we pull off there. Uh, luckily, there was guys in the band that were very competent auto mechanics. So we stopped in the parking lot of this fireworks shop. I can't say a stand because this is, it was actually quite big. And next to it was just fields with those giant rolls of hay. We're talking you know, up to six or seven feet tall. And we just camped there for the night. We cooked dinner over the camp stove that they brought. And about 9, 9.30, there was this beautiful lightning storm above Rapid City. Because we were still outside of the city for a while. So there are some taller buildings. And we just watched this beautiful lightning storm in the middle of a South Dakota summer. Hanging out, kicking the soccer ball around the parking lot. and. I had a really good time and it's such a nice memory because I can think of so many other times where whether it was a van problem or other problems on the road, uh, it really was the opposite of fun and enjoyable <laughs> and it was really dismal and you really understand the dynamics of doing something extreme like going on tour. So I really cherish those kind of memories because, man, I feel like that could become one of those stories that I like to tell as I get older, that everybody around me, like my family or whoever else might be like, oh, no, not this story again. But I love it. I guess they're just going to have to take it. <laughs> All right, that's enough of my older guy sentimental shit. Uh, let's move on to today's guest. Today's guest is a very accomplished producer and engineer by the name of Steve Evitz. He's also a very lovely human being. Steve has a large body of work and has created his own sound within the genres of punk, metal, and hardcore. Uh, he's set a lot of trends with the albums that he's made. And he's facilitated a lot of movements within these subgenres, both sonically and conceptually. Steve has made records for everyone from Lifetime and Snapcase, Kid Dynamite to Saves the Day, Dillinger Escape Plan, The Cure, Sepultura, um, and tons more. 
I'm just throwing some names out there just to give you an idea and a context of the world that Steve lives in. Uh, It was a little bit hard for me not to want to just rifle off a million questions at him like at once about all these different moments on different records that I myself, in addition to many of you, have listened to for so long. Uh, He naturally gets into a lot of those things that I wanted to ask him, which is cool. And I really felt grateful and uh, really enjoyed getting to talk to him. And he's just a lovely guy. So, for reals enough of me now, please enjoy my conversation with Steve Evans. Yeah, man, thanks for having me. And finally, we, you know, we've been talking about doing this for a while. And, you know, it's so funny when I reached out to you, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll just, uh, you know, go by because uh, I usually take 7th Street in Long Beach to down to the studio, my studio in Garden Grove. And then I, uh, I'm like, oh, yeah, I go by my, my favorite park that I bring my dog, Recreation. I'm like, that's right by where yeah. you are. And then, like, you're like, nope, <laughs> not anymore. I don't live here anymore. <laughs> Like, yeah, I just moved a little 400 miles north of there. Just, you know? just slight. Yeah, it would have been a hell of a, a little, little longer of a commute for me to drive to you. So. Yeah. Um, do you take your dog to the dog park at Recreation Park? Mm-hmm. Only just recently, we 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 discovered that you know I've been driving by there for years. Even when I lived in Seal, I drove by Recreation Park a million times, and like, like now, first time I brought my dog like there maybe a, last month. I'm like, look at this. This is awesome. And (laughs) never knew it was there, really. I mean, I always saw it. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, there's the golf course and whatever and blah, blah, blah. But that's a great park. Um, It is. Yeah, it's awesome. It's so cool how it's tucked away, even though it's off of busy 7th Street. But it's there and it's got all that field area. It's insane when you go in and, like, the whole pond and the whole whole lake, little lagoon area and, like— it's like you yeah. don't even realize this this little hidden gem in Long Beach. It's not even little. It's huge, but you don't realize yeah. it's there. Yeah, it's like Long Beach's uh, Central Park or whatever. I guess El Dorado was supposed to be, but El that's Dorado, more functional yeah. as like the metro city's like park. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's. I mean, uh, you know, my wife and I have lived in Long Beach now. Um, this will be going into our sixth year living in Long Beach. And we're still like, we, we go out and every time we go out, we're like, man, we need to get out in Long Beach more. Cause there's so many great little pockets of like, just so much stuff. There's just like, you could almost like, you'll never run out of stuff to, to find new things to find in Long Beach. It's awesome. For reals. It's such a dense city. There's mm-hmm. so much going on. I love it. And it's like one of the few places in Southern California you can live and just ride your bike everywhere in the city, you know? I love it. So, yeah, because we're right downtown too, so we just can you know we just walk all the all over the place. So it's just awesome, it's, and it's, it's fantastic. Downtown must have. I mean, it's so mellow downtown since pandemic. You know, with oh. like Pine Street closed off and everything. <laughs> Not <like>, anymore. <laughs> oh since, yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I'm happy. I, I, you know, I, 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 it's like a double edged sword. I'm happy to see the downtown kind of vibrant again, but now it's like. I needed to go get to this place by, you know, eight o'clock and it's like Friday night and I'm, I'm like cursing at everybody walking in the street because it's like out of control again. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That makes sense. Um, how long have you lived in California now? Because you're originally from New Jersey, right? Yep. 
Uh, originally Brooklyn, then Jersey. I mean, mostly, I would say Jersey. I mean, I, I grew up in Brooklyn. I was born in Brooklyn, uh, was there into grade school, uh, okay. and then family moved to Jersey. Um, I've been in California officially now. This is going on 17 years. 2004 is when I moved. Sick. And like a lot of my musician or people that work in music friends that come from New York or New Jersey and stuff, they oftentimes uh, move out here and they don't really look back. When I ask them, like, do you miss anything about it? They're like family. But I'm like, do you miss anything about the place? And they're like, fuck no. Are you one of those or do you still have a big part of you that misses and loves that place? There's, you know, there's a little part of me. I mean, I love New York City. I didn't like yeah. so much. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, I have friends and family, and my sister still lives in Jersey, in Central Jersey, like kind of close to where I grew up, which is we were we were in um, East Brunswick, which is next to New Brunswick, so like the whole uh-huh. you know Rutgers and everything, and that whole yep. music scene, which is you know, I mean, I'm eternally grateful for that scene because that's kind of the whole birthplace of my career. Um, yeah. So, but that's pretty much gone. There is no real New Brunswick music scene. There's a very, very few little things, few little places uh, left. Um, and, you know, I still have friends there and whatever that I grew up with, and my friends from high school and that I still keep in touch with. Uh, but as overall as just like suburban central Jersey, no, I do not miss it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair I do. My um, wife just. My wife just. See, my wife is from. Uh, she's from originally from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Uh, and she just went back to visit her mom finally, first time because we're both. We're both. We both uh, got the vaccine, so we're both like good to go. She got on the plane and visited her mom, and first time seeing her mom in person in like almost two years, which is insane. Yeah. Uh, and then she loves, she's the same. She loves New York City. So she like took, you know, when she went over the weekend, she, she did an overnight in New York and she's running around and she's calling me from, oh, Mike, I forgot how much I love the city. And I'm like, oh, I love the city too. Especially right now, like city in like springtime, there's, there's yeah. really not too much like it. The New York City in springtime is a really special thing. I agree. It's special because you get to explore and enjoy the city without the sweltering New York summer heat, you know, <laughs> or it's the crucial. miserable winter, and you know because of the dirt of New York City and everything. Which I, you know, I like the grime, but not when it's uh, it, there's snow and then it becomes this gray slush, smush sludge yeah. that's everywhere, and yeah, it's you know, yeah, but it's. It's there is something to say the least. It is. It is. But it's not that brutal. It's not like we're in, you know, North Dakota in the winter, you know, and it's minus whatever, <laughs> some ungodly number. That's true. You know, it's like how That's do you true. survive the New York winter? It's like it's I'm not, you know, it's, it's not it's not Siberia. It's it's New York. It's, you know, it's cold, but it's not like uh I not but I hate it. I don't I definitely let me go on record by saying I cannot stand winter and that's one of the reasons that I moved originally, obviously. And I was working out here a lot, but even when I was still living in Jersey and I was producing when I, after I had left um Tracks East, my studio, uh uh-huh. And I was kind of independent and I was running around and out here working. I would basically have try to like book gigs in California during the winter. So I would basically avoid winter. The last like three or four years I was in Jersey, I, I pretty much was always out here for most of the winter months avoiding winter because I couldn't I couldn't stand it. <laughs> 
Well, now you have such a nice setup because you're in downtown Long Beach. You have a straight shot up 7th Street to the 22 to Garden Grove to where mm-hmm. your studio is now. Yep. So, I mean, that's a nice path if you have to live in Southern California. It's not like terrible like if you had to drive to Studio City or somewhere like no, that. I'm, well, I did. When I first moved into this studio in Garden Grove, I was living in Santa Monica. So that was a... Oh. Yeah, that was uh, in like the Santa Monica Canyon, like up like PCH, like on borderline of Pacific Palisades. Uh, oh, beautiful, okay. up, beautiful gotcha. up there. But it took me forever to get one out of there, especially during the summertime. Like, and I I moved from from there to Seal Beach is where I you know like yeah I was only you know I was only two blocks from from Danbury's house you know in Seal you know I was right there. Oh, you were on the hill. You were on the I, hill. Up I there. was on I okay. was in Old Town on Twelfth Street. I was like literally right oh, okay. like two blocks from Matt's house. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome, man. And so now you found the happy medium of not as suburban as Seal Beach, but not fully cityized, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in between that, between Seal and Long Beach, um, my wife wasn't my wife at the time, my girlfriend. She was, uh, she had moved from West LA to down to, or from Torrance down to Encinitas for her work. And then okay. I moved in with her, so then I was doing that commute. I was going from Encinitas to the studio back and forth, Damn, which dude. is like seventy something miles, seventy one miles each way, you know. So yeah, now now you it's have like to when, sit in that Pendleton traffic too. Oh, like it's brutal. Oh yeah, and they were doing construction on the five, and it was just like brutality. <laughs> like it would take me two and a half hours. I'm I'm like midnight leaving the studio, get on the uh, and then uh, like one in the morning, I am literally by. Before, you know, by uh, San Onofre, they were doing construction, like, by the by the power plant. And yep. one in the morning, I am, like, literally at a dead standstill on the five. Like, somebody just shoot me right now. Just, <laughs> like... That's the worst. Yeah. So now, it's, like, it's unbelievable. We moved up with her job, transferred her up to... Up to the South Bay region that she, she was working for. And we moved to Long Beach, and then I went from like cool. a seventy-one mile commute to a twelve-mile commute, which was just like, ah, oh, this is the best. It's fantastic. It is. And that's the best, where I've been. Man. Yeah, <laughs> that's rad, dude. Um, well, I just wanted to start off by saying that, uh, like many people, you probably encounter, especially on the podcasts. Uh, I've been a huge fan of your work for a very long time. I have a lot of respect for the vast uh, body of work you've done, well, and thank you. I hope. Uh, I'm able to, I mean, I'm, I just have so many questions for you. So many things I wonder about. And, uh, one of the first things that I've always wondered about you is, you know, I feel like among producers, there's a spectrum and one end of the spectrum is kind of like engineer centric producers who like to focus mainly on the sounds that don't like to get into the songs too much. And then there's the opposite end of the spectrum, which is the producer side, which takes the more old school approach where they have an engineer, but they like to focus on the vibe and getting into the songs and stuff like that. Um, where do you use, and I, and I would think that a lot of producers like you would probably have to be flexible and, and adjust where they're at on that spectrum, depending on the artist. But by default, how do you view yourself on that spectrum? Well, I'm I'm kind of in the middle, but I mean, I started really as just an engineer, um, but also but having a musical background, you know, I can't keep my mouth shut if I think this part needs to change or whatever. That I would, right? I would really kind of always just you know blurt out what I thought, 
you know, so I wound up becoming, you know, especially when I worked, you know, back in the old days doing like a lot of the hardcore stuff and like real fast and doing a record in four days or whatever, you know, like stuff like yeah. that. So it's like, you know, you can't do too much, but you can make sure that the vibe is right. You can make sure that the, it feels good, you know? Um, yeah. Can make sure the energy's there. Uh, but it was really cr from just being the house engineer of Tracks East, you know, and then like bands wouldn't have a producer per se, but they were like, oh, well, let's just record with Steve. And like, you know, then yeah. then you realize like what you're doing is like, well, I'm actually producing, you know, I'm not I'm not the 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 beyond level of like, you know, you, you could you could stay even a third level of producer guys like a like a Feldman kind of guy who who does like right. a, a huge part of the songwriting. Which Absolutely. I, I don't do that. Um, I mean, I can, I do co-writes, but, and a lot of times, like, you know, when I, now the way, the way the industry has changed, they, they tell you, it's like, well, I'm doing this, I'm changing this, I'm changing this. And they're like, well, actually that's a co-write, but I've never actually like, um, oh, like, Hey, I need part of pub because I co-wrote this with you guys. But you know, yeah. it's, it's a different, it's a different way of looking at it now. Um, and I've gone into that now, but it's it's what I've been doing for for at least a, a you know a good portion of my career already. Um, cool. But it, it started off as just really being you know engineer and me tinkering with sounds and and just trying to figure out why does this sound like that and how do I get it to sound like why do why does my guitar sound not sound like this record or whatever? And it's like okay, let me let's try and get there, you know. But uh, you know, part of my philosophy always has been is that, you know, gear is important, but it's it's nowhere near as important as the player. And this, the sound comes from the player, their hands, the tone comes from their hands and, and the emotion they're putting into it and their experience and everything that they are goes into it, whether they're conscious of it or not. And um, it's it, it took me a while to realize that. You know, and I was always so focused on, oh, if I have this microphone, this will be, it'll be so much better. If I have this, it'll be so much better. Right. It's like, it helps. It's, don't get me wrong. It's, it helps, but it's, it's more about getting it from the person. It's more about the performance. And that's where I think I shifted more towards saying I'm a producer, but <clears throat> I'm a producer who engineers because I usually don't have an engineer working with me. Depends on, you know, right. depending on the budget. And I'm just too hands-on. Uh, half the time it's like I tell somebody, it's like, well, make this a little bit, can you darken that up or whatever? I could just get them away. And I just like turn a knob and it's uh, it's just real quick for me. I, I just rather, and it's not even like I'm being a dick about it. I'm just like, I just know yeah. what I'm hearing and I can just grab it and go, okay, that's good. Or yes, no, yes, no. It's like, I, I don't, I try not to give too much thought to the process. It's just about what I'm feeling or what I'm craving and just trying to like find it. I mean, I always tell people, it's like, I've done these recording classes and stuff like that. And like, how do you do this? And I'm like, I don't know. I just turn knobs till it sounds good. You know? <laughs> and that's really, that's honestly, yeah. that's really it. And, you know, I've had to like deconstruct my thought process. And I realize that there is a, there is a thought process that goes into it. If I really break it apart into a micro and dissect it. But, uh -huh. um, it's it's it, it, at the surface it's really just me thinking and react or just feeling and reacting totally and um that's for the record that's what i guessed your answer would have been because i feel like you uh are able to impart like a signature of sound on all of your records even throughout the arc of your whole career 
um, there's such a distinct sound, which I think also has a lot to do with why you've been such an institution in heavy music, you know, mm. um, for so long now. Uh, your your focus on guitar sounds, your focus on snare sounds, uh, aside from the whole drum sound itself, but in particular, like uh, for for myself as a listener, there's something special about Steve Evett's snare drums. You know what <laughs> I mean on records and stuff. Other people have um, told me that, and I'm like, I'm not, it's funny. It's 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 funny that I hear it from more than one person. But a couple of other people have told me the same thing, and I'm like, really? I'm I just I don't I don't think about that like the snare drum. You know what I mean? But it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah, an that's how it thought. comes out. But like a lot of us, the first time we hear snap cases, uh, I was gonna say I was I was gonna yeah. say the snap case snare. Let's what's <laughs> I knew we were getting to the snap case snare somehow. <laughs> well, I'm not gonna like highlight that, but I would just use that as an example to say. No, like, I know, I know. You're I'm just I'm kidding. Not but afraid. I, yeah. <laughs> But that you know, and I and I tell people that, but that was actually a compromise. Tim, the drummer for Snapcase, wanted it higher than that, and I was just like, I'm "Really?" Like, and yeah, and I brought it down. I'm not even joking. Yeah, well, I think it's all around that. It's not even just the highness; it's the amount of uh, reverb around it, and the the like the space you carved out in the mix for it. I think is a mm-hmm. really bold statement, and uh, for the time, it was super extreme and and sick and when i look like listen to it now and i look back on it i'm like this is bold and this is brave and this is awesome man like i think it's really sick oh thanks thank you very much um yeah i you know i listened to the funny thing is i i actually the last time i went back to tracks which was 2006 when I went back there to do the Lifetime reunion record, uh-huh. uh, we went back to tracks because they were going to come to me. They were actually going to come out to California, you know, talking to Yeman, and he's like, we'll come to California. I'm like, uh-uh. If we're doing a Lifetime record, we're doing a Lifetime record, and we're going back to tracks east. We're going to go to tape. We're going to do it exactly yeah. the way we, we made, you know, Jersey's Best Dancers and Hello Bastards. It's, there's no way we're, yeah. we're not doing that. And that my own caveat is like, okay, I'll bring it back to LA. We'll dump it to Pro Tools. I'll bring it back to LA and I'll mix it, at, you know, on, on like an SSL, which I did. And that was uh-huh. the only that was the only difference. Um, wow. But uh, but when I was back there, uh, I grabbed. There were still some reels, and I grabbed like a few tracks just for me as a t- as a more of a time capsule to listen to what I did. And I grabbed yeah. some tracks from from Progression Through Unlearning. And listening to it, and I was really, I was, you know, the snare is the one thing, but I was even really, I was really bold with even just the way the guitar sounded. They're really yeah. like, you know, like people like, oh, it's so tight, but it's really not even that tight. It's really kind of loose and it, it's tight enough. And and that's the thing about like making records back then on tape and stuff like that. We're not looking at it in Pro Tools. We're not looking at a screen. We're just feeling it and hearing the sound come out of the speakers and going. Oh, yeah, that that sounds good. That sounds nice and tight. But it's like if you really listen to it and the way people make records now, it's like they, they align everything so hardcore. It's and true. it's like that that width between the downbeat of everybody not quite hitting it together makes it so huge. And now you make it tight. It does. It's like it's, it takes all the oomph and all that push out of it. And I listened to those those tones that I got on that, especially uh, John's tone, John Salemi's tone. It's like, I mean, I know we use like a rectifier, but I mean that thing was just like. <laughs> like There's something special. Sounding. 
there's something special about that rectifier you sound you got though uh with the kind of you can hear that it's like the rectifier harmonic distortion but that summed with like the tape saturation and tape the way saturation kind of like, yeah and it way that kind of shapes the whole harmonic basically the harmonic identity of the guitars the way it sits in the mix is awesome i think yeah and that was and that also that's those he had a rectifier he had the og oh, okay, like the, yeah and those were mm-hmm. those things were like unicorns. Those things I really want to get myself a, 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 like a they're like the revision F or revision E, whatever they are. The early yeah. early, the rectifier, the rack mount ones with the diamond plate, you know, uh, front. Yep. Those things, if you could ever get your hands on one of those, they're not even that expensive. I've seen, but they're not they're not that hard easy to find. But when I find them, I mean, I've seen them for like a thousand dollars or eleven hundred dollars. Like not, it's like super expensive. Yeah. And they're they're like beyond. Those are like the rectifiers to get. Like they are. Yeah, are something dope. something special on those. Like the new ones just have nothing. There's zero. You know, they're all mass manufactured now. Like back then, they were they were still hand making those things. You know. Totally. Big dif- those things big difference. sounded amazing. Big difference. Yeah. Um, I know I saw one of those on sale on Craigslist last month up here, and I also saw for sale uh, a rack mount system of the Mesa fifty fifty with the triaxis. You remember that digital? Oh LED? God! Yeah, oh, yeah uh, sure. I absolutely remember the triaxis. I did the uh, Dillinger calculating infinity was a triaxis. Oh, that, that makes a, a lot of sense. Actually, that was that yeah. record was a triaxis and a. Uh, uh, I don't remember what we used for the power amp, but I know it was it was definitely a triaxis head. We might have even used like an actual like head, like a fifty one fifty or 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 a uh, or a P or some other head for and running in just into the return. So using the power amp for it. Yeah, I think that's what totally. we did. But that was a triaxis that's... and a, and a Parker Fly, even though that's like illegal. <laughs> Parker Fly, crazy. Uh huh. Uh. Your gear recollection is pretty good, then I would say, right? Like yeah, people could ask I have, you about random records, and you would be able I to mean, say certain certain records for sure. But I definitely have a lot of useless information rattling around in my head. <laughs> I think all of us do, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's just the nature of it. Oh yeah, that was this. Oh, well, you know, it's like, and then you talk yeah. to anybody else. I tell this stuff to my wife, and she's like, looks at me like I have three heads. Like, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, totally. She man. still doesn't well, know what I do for a living. <laughs> she knows that you kind of like make heavy like rock records and stuff. She thinks like, she always goes like this. She goes, "You do this on the computer." Like, and I'm making a <laughs> thing like typing with my hands. I'm like, "No, that's not what I do." Yeah, I actually it is kind of what I do, but not really. That's not what I want to do. I want to just like not look at a screen ever. Right. I'd rather I'd rather if I had my way, I'd still be making records completely on tape. Yeah. Do you still do any uh, sessions where you at least uh, dump it to tape and then back to Pro Tools just for the yes, saturation? I, yeah, I do. I do. Well, I I, I had a, a two-inch machine. I actually just got rid of it. I had a Studer A80, but um, it just needed too much work and nobody wants to work on it. So I actually I, I just got rid of it. Um, I plan on – I think I want to get something sooner than later. I'd like to get a get another tape machine, but something a little more – a little more reliable. I mean, I yeah. grew up on Otari machines, not Studer's really. So like tracks, we had had an MX-80 and then an MTR-90. 
Uh, I would Sick. love to get myself a, an Atari machine because they're they're pretty bulletproof. I mean, it, good luck getting parts if they if it does break. Same thing because it's just like yeah. it's just finding anything. But um, I work. Uh, I've done a quite a. F- I've done a f- like four projects over the past like four years. I've done at uh, at um, six oh six at the Foo Fighters place. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, this band that record just came out like literally two weeks ago. A band called Ego Kill Talent from Brazil, a rock band. Uh, we did the whole record. At uh, the other stuff, I would do like drums there or whatever, and we dump it in. But I spent an entire month there, which was awesome. You know, on the Sound City desk, which is great because I used to work at Sound City quite a bit back in the early two thousands. Uh-huh. Uh, and we did the majority of the record to tape, which was just. Uh, I felt like a drowning person, like coming up for air for the first time. I was like, <gasps> oh, thank God! Like it was Loved just. It. Oh my God. I mean, like just the same, same thing, like not, you know, towards the end we dumped it all in and then we, we did some overdubs to Pro Tools. But for the first portion of it, I'm just like literally listening. We're listening, 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 not looking at a screen. You're listening to the music come out of the speakers and you're reacting to it, which is how I grew up making records. And it's like, it's yeah. just a different thing. And I also think about like, I go like, man, how did I make all those records in like eight days? Like, you know, whatever, like that Hatebreed record I made in like nine days, including mixing, like stuff like that. Like, it's like, I don't think I can make a record that fast with Pro Tools because it's just invariably you start looking at things and you just, you just can't help it. You start, you start digging with stuff. It's just like, instead of, you know, I, I try to like really still treat Pro Tools as like a tape machine. I try to, you know, like, hey, why don't we save that? Like, give me another playlist. Let me save that guitar. Let me save that solo. I'm like, why? I literally, and some people get pissed at me, and I'm like, I'm going, why? Do you like it or do you, don't you like it? You're not yeah. going to, if you don't like it now, you're not going to like it magically, you know, two days from now. Like, yeah. either yes or no. It's every everything, it's like a simple pie chart, you know, simple flow chart. Do you like this? Is it cool? Yes, no. Yes, cool, move on. No, go back to the start and do it again, <laughs> you know? That's yeah. that's just the way I approach it. I back it. that so much. It's how to well, keep I, the life I in know, the music is rather I know than you guys do. Rep- I mean, like I know your last the last like two or th- like three or four, last three three records, last three RX records, you did completely four. live. Four. You did completely live. Yeah. Yeah, we do live to tape and live then tape. we overdub. And then we do overdubs in Pro Tools. But yep. for us, we, we think like you, uh not only is the I guess the basically the tape saturation for drums and all the important oh, instruments yeah. like so crucial, but actually the visualization process of not worrying about knowing that you can punch in and out in milliseconds and having to commit to whole phrases, if not whole takes themselves, mm-hmm. is exactly what our music is predicated upon. So when you say that, I'm like, hell yeah, I'm all about it, man. Oh yeah, I mean I do the same thing, like, but I'll, I'll punch. I mean I'm fearless with tape. I'll punch the whole band. Here we go. Yeah. I, I, you know, and like the first couple of times going back to it, I was like, like almost like holding my breath, like, and I punch in and I'm like, but you know, especially on like a, like the newer machines, like you could punch and you don't even hear shit, you know? And I, I know, totally. and like, I don't even like, it was like, it was like literally like riding a bike. Like I got back into it and I was like, yeah. And on that Eagle Kill Town record, man, I was just punching drums like left and right. Don't, I don't care. Doing That's like, rad. Do, so- doing, doing like, um, or like you do like the thing where you literally 
you punch, and then you if you're worried about the punch out, like you you chop in an extra piece of tape, you punch, and then you yeah. get to, you know, and then splice the tape. Isn't that ironic that doing that is still somewhat quicker and more efficient than like drum editing it's, in modern times where there's like three days? It's so much quicker. It's not even, it's, it's not even funny. Yeah. When I think about like, and like, you know, I know you guys aren't really doing stuff to a click at all, but like sometimes I'll do stuff to a click, sometimes I won't. Like I go back to like, back in the day, like uh, saves a day through being cool. Like, and they wanted to go to a click. The first record we did, Cancel It Down, was no click. Yeah. You know, but it was, I mean, every song was, and most of it was like, you know, the lifetime, like the fast beat kind of stuff and whatever. Yeah. Uh, in the second record, they, you know, Chris, I remember Chris telling me, he's like, we're going to try to try to a click. Brian Newman had never played to a click before, but he was willing to give it a go. So we did it to a click and I was doing like stuff. I was printing a click, but I was, I would like, do tempo changes, like give it a little bump for the chorus, like live. I was using my Roland R8 drum machine and running a click and then like doing tempo, like up, down, like click one, click down, and, like yeah. live as the band was going through it. And then, then that would be our little tempo map. And, you know, we did the drums for Through Being Cool in like uh, two days or maybe three days. Mo we did the whole record in like two weeks, start to finish, including mixing. Uh, but... You know, Brian wanted, we wanted the tempos right and whatever. So Brian, like, we got to it, but he was not very good with playing a click because it was the first time just throwing him in. He's like, okay, I'll try this. And he just, you know, but I mean, I was punching like in and out constantly on like, you know, punching phrases of drums, punching choruses, punching just like a little part, like four notes, do, 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 in, out, boom, boom, boom. And like, yeah, I'm fearless with it. I don't really care. I, I used to punch so much like that. And, you know, and then again, people don't even realize it. Like you could do that on tape and like, you know, all them, any tape machine after like 1980, like you could punch in and out and you'll never hear, you won't hear it unless you, totally unless you mess up and you punch it wrong and then you're getting a flammed kick drum or whatever, but then you can go and even spot erase the kick drum, the double flam on the totally. kick, you know, <laughs> like there's, I'm, there's a I'm whole glad. different craft to it. And it's, a, you yeah. Know. Um, I'm really glad you brought up through being cool because on the subject of tape and your punching confidence and everything. I, I was going to ask you about that. Like maybe what I thought I was hearing was actually some like drum edits in between fills to next part to next part. Could be. And I realize that maybe it's not so much that maybe what I'm hearing is punching sometimes right on where the tempo gets kicked up by two BPM or three BPM for a chorus or something like that mm -hmm. too. Could be. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. I could probably um, point out certain punches that I know, but other than that, I, I even forget now. Like, oh, whatever. I mean, I you know, there's there's a couple of them I know for sure, and I'm like, there, right there. And I point it out to people, yeah. like, that really? I'm like, yeah, you don't hear it? <laughs> you know. So back when you're first getting your start, like, uh, mm -hmm. like Dead Guy was one of the first bands you recorded, right? Uh, no, that was still already, that was still the first, first record I ever produced was a death metal record by the band called Incantation. This is now I'm yeah, really dating myself. This was 1991. Sick. Yeah. That was the first record I ever produced. Uh, and then I was very spottily producing because I was literally just getting started at the studio. Like, you know, a tracks, I started a tracks in like late 90, um, and I did Incantation in 91. I did MOD in 92. 
uh, and it was yeah. mostly like local bands, you know. But then the whole New Brunswick scene, that whole New Brunswick uh, hardcore scene, and, and including you know like when you think about Handy Street, and that was Jeff Rickley's house, and like the whole like you know that whole that whole scene, like we were the only good 24 track recording studio like in the area there was like one other but nobody really went to them and it was literally just going to tracks um everybody came to tracks east so i was doing doing a lot of the new brunswick scene bands you know and, and yeah, that dead guy was sense. dead guy was part of the new brunswick scene they were part of for it for sure so yeah, dead guy, dead guy. We did those those the two seven inches, two different seven inches, and then um, we did the full length fixation for for Engine Records originally. That was the original label uh, who put out the the work ethic uh, seven inch, and um, they. We did the record for them, but they couldn't pay the bill. So the, the, the master sat, it was done, mixed. The master dat tape sat in the tape vault at Tracks East for like nine months. And then Damn. Dave Ro- and then Dave Rosenberg said knew Tony at Victory and uh he's like Tony you know, Tony Tony said, Oh, I'll put out the record and then so they bought the the right, they bought the masters. They basically they basically paid it to get out of jail paid to release the masters from jail and yeah. uh then victory wound up putting out the record and that was my introduction was, to victory records that was my first record for victory was that whole thing done on dat or was it actually a dat or was it actually dat uh no dat like we mixed down to dat we didn't have a we didn't have okay. an analog we had a we had a the atari uh quarter inch mixed down uh two track but we never really mixed down to that we always just mixed down to dat Okay, and then towards yeah. the end, I, I bought I bought a Studer A eighty half inch machine, and okay, cool. the last few records I made of tracks we mixed down to to half inch, but before that it was all, all those records Snapcase all that stuff that was all mixed down to DAT the Panasonic like thirty five hundred or thirty seven hundred whatever it was. Yeah, the first studio I interned at, I learned how to record and track on these Alesis ADAT machines, you know, waiting for them to all sync up and all oh that Oh my God, like p- watching paint dry. Yeah. Oh, Forever, the they, they rewound the so slow too. Just like, okay. So slow. Yeah, and mm-hmm. the buttons were like so unresponsive. There's like a five millisecond delay with the recording for punching? record button. In it. Yeah, dude, it oh, was yeah. the worst. Then they had yeah. the newer ones, the XT20s or whatever, and they were faster. But they were still. Oh yeah, like, yeah. We had. I'm uh, glad that medium is gone. <laughs> uh, me too. We had the Tascam ones later on. We had the Tascam DA88s, and those uh-huh. were great. Those were fast. They worked fast. They were much faster than the ADATs. Yeah. And then event. And then also, we would sometimes towards the end, before we even had Pro Tools, we would sync up a one of the one or two DA88s to the 24 track machine with Simpty with timecode. To like oh, if yeah, we needed yeah. extra tracks, we could actually slave. We could actually slave those and yeah. track to them. You know, you do like a, a we do like a, a rough mix to two tracks of the of the other ones with with time code, and yeah. then just overdub on those really quick, so you don't have to wait for them to sync up while you're overdubbing onto the extra tracks. So do your overdubs on that, and then sync them all back up for the mix. 
Oh, that's smart. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I dig that. Um, has there been, or there probably has to be, I should ask, rephrase the question. What are your pieces of gear, if there are any, that have lived with you throughout most of your career that you could never do without? Oh, God. I'd say if I had to pick anything, like, would be obvious, you know, the obvious one would be like a Neve 1073 Mike Pre, because you can't right. go wrong with that. Uh, for me, it's, um, uh, if I had to pick one microphone, I mean, obviously a 57 is the obvious choice, but for me, actually, the, uh, honestly, the AKG 414 is yeah. my, that's to me the, that's like the 57 of condenser mics. And I mean, I, I yeah. use them on guitars. Like I love them on guitars. They're my, they're my favorite mic, guitar mic. I've used them on I the see. guitars almost the entire, my entire career. I love, that's like my go-to instead of a 57, I'll put a 414 up and on a guitar cabinet. Did you ever go through a period of using them as overheads or room mics for drums? Oh yeah, I'm, I used them on. I've used them on everything. I've used them on toms. I've used them yeah. on room mics. I've used them on overheads. I, I used. To, I've been using. I use them on overheads still sometimes. Um, they're great as room mics. They're great on vocals. So only certain vocalists. Greg from Dillinger Escape Plan. Greg from Dillinger Escape Plan is one of them for like his screaming vocals, like four fourteen. He sounds phenomenal on a four. He sounds great on anything, but he sounds phenomenal on a four fourteen. There's just something about the way it kind of like distorts and overloads. He seems to have a lot more bass in his scream than a lot of screaming singers too. Yeah, well, um, he's actually screaming because right. that's a, that's the ish. That's the difference. He's not yeah. doing. He's still after all this time. He's still not doing like the, you know, the that 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 like fake <laughs> that yeah. that fake scream. That I love right. so much. <laughs> it's like I'm yeah, really makes... angry. It's like no, you're not. Yeah, the the controlled Velociraptor scream. Yeah, the, yeah. I love that. That's great, controlled Velociraptor. Yeah, that's it's how it just sounds like, to me. It's it's. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, but that's like half the. I mean, like when I listen to, I, I also, if you want, to, for instance, Greg is one. I mean, he is like just full on blowing out veins popping out of his neck just like you know yeah. he grabs the mic even with the, on the stand and like he's like wrenching it like every time I'm done he gets out of the vocal when he's doing a scream vocal it's like it's, it's on a stand but it's like twisted and it's like mangled somehow and it's like sideways and the stand's going one way and the mic's the other way cause he's just like Aah! like you know yeah and and you know you hear it if you put the, pull the track up you're like oh my god he's like just you know, it sounds pissed, and it is. And you know, Tim Singer, it. Tim Singer from Dead Guy, unbelievable. He only knows how to do yeah. it one way. He's just yelling at the fucking top of his lungs, and it's just glorious. You know, I feel like you, especially on Dillinger's Miss Machine. I really love how you captured the power of the screaming. I feel like in a new way. Not for that, not just for them, but in for heavy music recording, like the place that it occupies in the mix without making anything else sound small, especially on Miss Machine is like really special to me. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, that's yeah. an even, I mean, that's a, I try to always try to capture that no matter what, but to, to have it have its place in 
such a generally dense mix as like Dillinger where there's, you know, it's like herding cats. There's a million things going on at once and you're trying to like have the vocal drive a straight line through everything. And right. that's, that's the, that's the, that's the trick with all that stuff is to really, you know, such a challenge. He needs to basically, he's the bulldozer and he's just going and just plowing through it to cut to the center yeah, that's, of it. And that's exactly what you nailed on that whole sound and mix of Miss Machine. You know what I mean? I mean, I also wanted to talk to you about uh, the irony is a dead scene EP. Um, mm-hmm. Like, cause I feel like the mix on that is also amazing. And oh, the you. way you were able to work in, you know, Mike Patton's vocals, which is, got basically essentially like an opposite tonal quality a lot of the times, even though Mike Patton is capable of doing so many goddamn things with his voice. Yeah. Uh, that was amazing. But I just wanted to ask, like, how was it uh, working on that EP? How was it recording Mike Patton as a vocalist? Is it, did I, it I did not, kind of stoke you? I actually didn't record Mike. I, I didn't record. That's gotcha. the only Dillinger record I did not record. Uh, I mixed it. I was out oh, here. Oh, you only mixed it. I only mixed okay, it. Gotcha. Uh, Mike did a couple of quick little things uh, at the studio, like a quick, a couple of quick, teeny little overdubs. But that was it. Like there was, there was no, there was no. Uh, I just, I was calling. I was called in. Ben called me like, "Help! We need help mixing this thing." Because I was like, I was out here working uh, again. Like I told you, I was like, "It's winter time. I'm out of here. See you, Jersey." I'm going to California where it's nice and warm. And I yeah. was working on a project. I was actually working on uh, Homegrown. Okay. As a matter of fact, I was working yeah. on Homegrown. And uh, our boy, our boy Johnny, our boy Tran. Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> and and, uh, and um, yeah, so they were, they worked, they did the EP with this other guy in Jersey. And uh I see. And then he called me up and they were they were having problems mixing it and he just called me up like, "Help, come back to Jersey." And I flew back to Jersey to mix that record and then flew back to California to <laughs> continue on something else I was doing. I see. Well, then you definitely saved the day, man, because huh. that that mix is makes it sick. But now that you say that, I was going to say there seems to be a different sonic quality to it, so it makes sense that you didn't track it. You know? I feel that. Yeah. yeah, but it was great to mix, and it was great working. You know, Mike was at the studio. Mike came to the studio to show place where we mixed the mixed the that EP. It was hanging out. It was awesome. And there was That's a rad. there was a very interesting story. I don't even know if I want to get, <laughs> could get into it, but a friend, a mutual friend of of the bands and Mike's, uh, got a DUI when we were in the studio, and they went to go bail him out. And then there was a very funny scene where uh, the police department in North Jersey, in this place where the the, the guy was being held, uh, they're looking at Mike, going like, "You're familiar. You look familiar. You look familiar. Who, who are you? You look, you know." And then Ben told them he was Eddie Van Halen, and they were like, "I knew it!" And they're high fiving each other like, "Fuck Eddie Van Halen, man!" <laughs> I'm not even. I'm not even. You can't even make this stuff up but this is the true story. <laughs> I thought he would have just been like, yeah, dude, singer of faith, no more. But he just said Eddie Van Halen. He told him he was Eddie Van Halen instead. 
That's hilarious, man. Yeah. Um, so it it's true then that you did calculating infinity on tape. We did. <laughs> and so with a drummer like Chris at that time, um, yep. was did you even need to do that many edits, tape edits for the uh, drum tracks? No, it was, it was there was no. I don't think I cut. I didn't cut any tape. We we punched in, but again because it was all so free flowing, it was. If we punched in, if if he messed up, we go back. Okay, let's back it up right here. Okay, ready? All right, and we just I would just drop in, and then continue on. You know, obviously there was no punching out; there was just punching in. Yeah, and at that and time, there, I think he there, was still... there might have been there might have been one tape edit. There might have been one slice between two different takes, and that was literally it. Okay, that's what I would think. I mean, most of us who are fans of the band record and him as a drummer would probably imagine that. Yeah. Um, and at the time, he was still playing that kind of three-piece setup with just the floor tom, right? No, calculating well, he had the rack tom. calculating was like a. It was either a three-piece, uh, is either a five-piece kit or or it might have been a six. It might have been four tom. It was either three or four toms. I can't quite remember. I remember it was a Noble and Cooley kit. Okay. Uh, and then Miss Machine was the three-piece kit. Kick snare four. Okay, that's right. That's the yeah, that that's the sense. one that I try to tell people that and they listen to his drums and they're like, what? I'm like, kick snare floor tom. The end. Yeah. I didn't believe it until I saw that kind of tracking studio footage of, you know, when they kind of did like the documentary thing of recording that. And yep. I had to watch those parts like multiple times to go, wait, what? But what back when he did calculating, did he still have his symbols set up quite low? No, there was a, he had, okay. had his, his setup kind of like evolved. So it okay, was more gotcha. of a traditional setup, almost more of like a, you know, yeah. like a techie proggy setup. Right. That makes sense. Which would probably make engineering and recording the drums easier. But when you got to Miss Machine and he has like just a floor tom and the cymbals are definitely much lower then, which yeah, is. Yeah, but it was, but it was kick snare floor tom. It was just like, there was, there was a million, there was, there was tons of room still. It wasn't like a crowded drum kit. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you weren't having issues with, especially with him being such a precise drummer. There was no issues of cymbal bleed and needing to expand toms and not no, doing any of that kind of stuff. Not really. No, 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 no it was easy. Yeah, I would admit. That's the you know, beauty in, in, of having drummers like that. Huh? Yeah, and the two different iterations. We tracked that record in like in two chunks. We did the first part at a studio called Water Music in Hoboken. Uh, and that was like a good chunk of the record. And then we did uh, the rest of the songs at this studio in Brooklyn and Williamsburg called Mission Sound. Okay. That's cool. So... Um, when you take your kind of method and you are working with bands like Sepultura or something, mm-hmm. uh, was that process similar where you're trying to keep it analog to tape or did you have to kind of meet halfway in the middle because maybe like Max Cavalera has a different way of wanting to record and stuff like that? Well, it wasn't Max. Don't forget it was, this is post-Max. This is with Derek Green singing. Uh, oh, I did, okay. So I this is three- when he had done Soulfly already? Max already left to Soulfly. Max, the last record with Sepultura was Roots, 96. Um, That's right. That's right. And then Derek came in. They did that one record uh, against with Howard Benson, and then I did the next three. Uh, But his brother, Igor, was still drumming. Oh, okay, yeah, Igor. 
Eager right. was still drumming, right? Um, but yeah, uh, first record Nation we did uh, we did to tape uh, for the most part, and then dumped to Pro Tools and start. We did vocals and bass to to Pro Tools, but we did drums and guitar to tape. Okay, cool. And did they come to California to record with you? No, I was in Rio. I was in a studio in Rio de Janeiro. I was living in a studio a block from the beach for like four months. So boo-hoo for me. <laughs> yeah, I love Rio, man. Rough life. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Rio is so awesome. And it's oh crazy. To, you don't realize like when you get there, how like tight the city is, meaning you can get mm. to everywhere pretty easily. And like you were probably right there in from Ipanema Beach. Uh, we were in the studio was in uh, Baja de Juca, which is two okay. down from Ipanema, or uh-huh. no, three yeah. down from Ipanema. It's like Cop- Ipanema, Copacabana, San Cojado, yeah. and Rio. Rio. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the studio was a block from the beach, from Pepe Beach and the uh, Praia Pepe in in Baja, which is like, and our hotel was like that we were staying at. We were all had like these like live in like hotels that were basically you know just apartments. And yeah. we were on the beach, you know, and then get up and go on the beach and then go to the studio. And it was, uh, it was rough. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have time to do any touristy stuff? Like go to up to Sugarloaf or anything like that? Or were you mainly uh, we just We did. We did, but you know, not too much, you know, like I, I, you know, the touristy thing is great. And I, I obviously I'd like to see the, the tourist attractions, but I used to love when I traveled before I moved into the studio after, between the time I left tracks and the time I moved in to here into the studio in Garden Grove was like a seven year gap. And uh, that whole time, I just traveled and made records at different places and different places in the, in the around the world. And I used to love going to a place and not being a tourist and being like basically part of the working force. And like I used to love like yeah. go to a place and live there for like you know six weeks, two two months, three months, and make a record there and really kind of like ingrain yourself into the culture that way. You know, I was in Japan for for almost seven weeks making a record. I was in Brazil. I've been to I've been to Brazil uh, like fifteen times. I've been to Brazil more than I've been to anywhere else, um, and like usually for chunks at a time, a mo- anywhere from a month to uh, to 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 four months. So the, that first Sepultura record, I was like, I was basically there for four months. Damn. So, yeah. Yeah, that's rad. Um, did you also? Did you spend like lengthy periods of time in England when working on the Cure record? I did. I was in I was in London for I lived in London for six months working on the Cure. Oh, were you in Metro London or somewhere outside of the city? Uh, we were. The hotel was the Royal Garden, which is like where all the bands stay. Like that. That's like um, yeah, uh, Kensington High Street, like next to Hyde yeah. Park, right from um, uh-huh. Royal Albert, right from two blocks from the Royal Albert Hall. Right. Um. And then the studio was was Olympic, in in uh, in Barnes. So we would take the take a cab over the over the Hammersmith Bridge into Barnes and go to go to Olympic. You know, another yeah. like I never got to go to Abbey Road, which was like my ultimate dream. <laughs> but yeah. Olympic at the time was owned by EMI, so they were sister studios with Abbey Road. Uh, but you know, Olympic is like how many legendary records were made at Olympic? You're talking about first three Zeppelin. 
Totally. You know, Hendrix, you know, original Are You Experienced, uh, you know, Rolling Stones, Goat's Head Soup, you know. Yeah. You know, when you travel to do, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was. I was going to ask, like, when you travel, um, do you have racks that you take with you of your own gear that you prefer to have? Or if you go uh, to a nice studio like Olympic, are you just kind of rolling? I brought, yeah, I do. You know, I would travel with sometimes, but then, you know, it becomes such a pain because of customs. Sometimes, yeah. like, I, you know, when I went to Brazil, I brought I brought a rack of, uh, I brought a whole rack, especially when I, the first, but that when I went to that, that first Sepultura record, I brought, I actually brought my Pro Tools rig. Because the studio oh. was straight analog and did not have even have a Pro Tools rig, so I actually oh. brought my Pro Tools rig to use there. Um, okay. And like in that rack, also had a couple of preamps and whatever that I used a lot. Uh, but mostly it was like like hey, we, we're going to need the Pro Tools rig if we're going to do part of the you know if we're, they wanted to go to Pro Tools you know at least partially you know. Uh, I was so the one who insisted. Like I was your... the one who insisted on going to analog. So I brought that there, but literally the thing sat in customs. We were we did pre-production and then we were tracking stuff, and like only like maybe two weeks into tracking on with drums, did my Pro Tools rig show up. Were they the uh, Pro Tools HD interfaces then, like in racks? No, it was a Mix Plus. Okay, gotcha. So it was the one before it, you know. Yeah. But yeah, in racks, Which... it, uh, you know, same thing. Yeah. They look like uh, they will look like high tech bombs that would be in like a Die Hard movie, basically yeah. when they're in rack. So I get it. I know exactly. <laughs> so yeah, uh, and then like I've had pr- too many problems, and then like when I the cure, I brought I brought a I brought like a small maybe like a six space or an eight space rack, uh, but this is post nine eleven, and uh-huh. so I the thing comes off the out of the the thing. The racks, the ear, the the lids hanging off. It's all bent. The things are all fucked up. And then I see that nice little car. Like, oh, the TSA and opened this up and inspected it, but then didn't bother to actually put the rat the lid back on properly. So then everything yeah. got jacked up. And then you have to take it up with the TSA or take it up with the airline. And it's just like I got too. Was that Brazil? No, no. For the cure, I'm saying for for oh, the cure. okay. Uh, yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I was gonna no, say that, in that Brazil, Sepultura I, record I did that was two thousand. That was pre nine eleven. So yeah, uh, I don't know if you've had experience flying any domestic airlines in Brazil between cities, mm-hmm. but like the couple times we've toured there, like the last RX tour in Brazil, they wrecked one of my Moogs, which admittedly I shouldn't uh, be taking on tour, but like yeah. I opened it up at the next show, and like one of the panels of my little fatty is just completely chipped and fucked up, and the synth doesn't work because they obviously took it out at security in brazil and dropped it and like oh, it totally oh. fucked it up and i i sent it back to moog twice and because of all the circuit boards in those things like they're like we can't find like the connection that's the problem i'm like oh my god i learned my lesson no yeah yeah i just like that's why like i try to you know i try to uh not bring anything if I can <laughs> now. Yeah. Even like uh, I went, you know, I just um, la- end of 2019. I went to I went to Nashville to do the new Newfound Glory record, and uh-huh. um, and uh, I really like I I brought like some guitar pedals, anything I could pack in a suitcase. I brought some guitar pedals and a couple other things, and that was it. I didn't bring anything. 
I kind of regret not bringing my my speakers, but whatever, you know. <laughs> I may do. Oh, you mean your studio monitors? Yeah, my studio monitors. What what kind do you use? What are your favorite? Uh I was now it's been I have these old school KRK V8, the series 1 V8s. Wow. I okay. I love them. They're they're fantastic. I I haven't I've been you know, I was a Genelec guy for years and years and years, and I used to mix them. Uh-huh. I would have Genelecs, and then I still have them, but I just don't. I don't. I've. I went back to KRKs. I, I used to use the KRK, the passive ones, back in the tracks East days, and I used to love them because they're they're just so easy to listen to, and you can track on them for hours, and your ears don't get burnt out. Uh huh. Um, the Genelecs were a little more fatiguing on your ears, and then mixing on NS10s, like obviously they were so, they're, they're beyond, harsh. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But totally. I, I literally started mixing on the V8s like like last year, out of nowhere, and like my mixes have never been better. So oh, I've been that's great. Like I just I was like that's it. I'm using these now. <laughs> do you do you still use NS10s ever? Like referencing when you're starting drum tracking or anything like that? I have them. I'll, I'll turn them on every once in a while. Go, okay, these sound really honky. Cool. <laughs> But uh, like, I mean, I still, I still will check them. I'll check them like when I'm dialing in guitar tones too, because you know I know what they sound like, you know, and I, I want to reference them. So I'll use. I, it's good to have something else to listen to. But I've been just so on this this tear with the care case. But you know, just like anything, it changes. It 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 varies. Yeah, things go in vogue and go out of vogue. You know, with all us. Totally. Oh, I've been mixing on these lately. Yeah, but you're the type of person that you're the type of person that with their opinion and what they would use helps sway what's in vogue and not. You know what I mean? I don't know about that, but (laughs) thank you. Thank you for saying that. I think so. I I think it's just more of a commentary on the body of work and how you've established yourself more than it is just like, you know, fluffing you or something like that. (laughs) Right. You know what I mean? Like like you've earned that spot, bro. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like respect (laughs) to you you for that. Well thank you. You know. Um, one thing I'm no, dying but those, to know. Those, those V8s are, are really cool. They're, they're very, it's, if you could, if anybody who's, who's into studio stuff and they're looking for some monitors, go try and find yourself a pair. They've got to be either series one or series two, because that's when they were still Huntington beach, brah. That's when they were, yeah. they were handmade. They were actually made by when care K was a small company in Huntington beach. And they're basically focal. Like the, the 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 components in the, the the series one are focal components, so they're basically oh, focal crazy. speakers. Yeah, they're great. Okay, they're fantastic. Okay, so this is far this is far in its origin from like their KRK rockets and like Guitar Center level stuff. Oh now, yeah, right? yeah, they yeah. got bought out by uh, Gibson. Actually, bought yeah. KRK, and then they they just farmed everything out, and it's all made cheap and just whatever. It's like apparently yeah. the new the new new ones because they they somebody else bought KRK. Gibson sold KRK, uh, and apparently the new newest ones are pretty good. From mm. from I I heard it from a couple of reputable sources that I trust, but I haven't Fair heard enough. it myself. I haven't heard it myself. But I'll uh, I'm definitely gonna check that out then. Check it out. Series one or two KRK V8s. Mm-hmm. Oh, V8s or V or V6s. Okay. Um, one thing I'm dying to know is you you know you record a lot of hardcore metal bands so you're mm-hmm. obviously familiar with people's studio attire whether it's running shorts and slides or sandals <laughs> or whatever it is right like being comfortable uh-huh. 
honestly, dude, like when you're working with the cure, does Robert Smith have studio attire or is this guy coming in with full hair and makeup? Like what's the, what's the deal? Uh, I gotta know. He's coming in looking like Robert Smith, but not fully. He's a little more disheveled. Uh, He always has some lipstick on. But Fair not enough. the full, not full pancake makeup or anything like that. Right, right, right. Okay, gotcha. And uh, but he looks it was, like was he, it? he he. It's like it's it's like it's not like he looks like some other dude, and then like he puts on the rubber. No, he's Robert Smith through and through. <laughs> and that Cure record is a bit heavier than a lot of their stuff that you did. Do you think them? bringing you in was part of that like trying to embrace well, this heavier sound I mean, or it was it wasn't i mean no i didn't produce that record i engineered it and mixed it so uh ross robinson yeah. produced it right know. right right but i still that knowing was, kind of what side ross robinson lives on in that and knowing your work i still place my personal opinion is that i place more importance on your side of things as far as shaping the sound of the record you know mm, in a lot of ways so much there's 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 some leeway with Ross and and Ross and I have been friends for now going on 23 years um uh-huh. and there's a tr- there's an inherent trust so if I go with something he'll you know he might be like oh yeah blah, blah, blah. but like it's it's all what Ross is craving I'm you know and my job in that capacity is to serve the producer you know, I have to be basically an engineer. He'll ask me my opinion for something here and there, but for the most part, it's what he wants and, more importantly, what Robert wants. Like, you okay, know, gotcha. Ross would produce it and, like, he's like, oh, like, yeah, no, that doesn't sound right. You know, you know it's like he always creates these very dark kind of tones and, like, uh-huh. it was always, like, darker, 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 darker. But and he, and he always wants to go very quickly and I have to, like, you know and anticipate what he wants and move quickly to get that. But that was gotcha. all... That was Ross's doing. the The Cure record, funnily enough, was an accident for me. I, Ross and I had worked together on a bunch of things like Glassjaw and whatnot, and Amen, uh, and then Ross, and then at the drive-in as well. But Ross was working with Mike Frazier, this Canadian engineer, who he'd done a done a, quite a few records with actually, uh, and Frazier was supposed to engineer the cure record with Ross. They were doing pre-production at Olympic in a different studio in studio two. Ross is like, Hey, phrase can't come. Can you fill in for like two weeks? I'm like, are you kidding me? Cause I've worked with the cure, like one of my favorite bands. Okay, sure. No problem. Like fly to London and go work with the cure for two weeks. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the answer is get when, when's my flight? That's the, that's my yeah. next response. You know what I mean? So, uh, and then, but I came out there and, you know, it just worked so well with me and Ross working together. And then, you know, Ross comes to me like two days in and goes, Hey, Robert loves you. He's going to ask you to stay. And I was supposed to go back. I was supposed to produce another record for like a big label and like for a lot of money. And Robert just comes up to me and is like, can you, can you, will you stay and make the record? And I'm not going to say no to Robert Smith, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I basically had to have my manager go, Hey, tell these guys, uh, sorry, I can't do this right now. I'm going to be in London for uh, God knows how long. And it was supposed to be like, oh, I was only going to be in London until like February and I wound up being till May. So it was like supposed to be there for two months and it wound up being six months. Cool. So this all happened on the back of this whole friendship 
working relationship that you had with Ross and Mm -hmm. basically when you got there, the chemistry being so good that it's what, you know, they wanted to keep rolling with. Yep. But you still mix the record. I still mix the record. I was supposed to, I wasn't even supposed to mix the record. They, you know, uh, guy was supposed to mix the record. He came out and he started mixing in the other studio while I, we were still tracking and Mm -hmm. Robert kept going like, why do Steve's rough mixes sound better than the finished mixes? <laughs> I'm not even joking. I was just like throwing up fear. I was just like, ah, this feels good. Okay, boom, done. Like quick, like five minute rough mixes. So that was it. It was just like he left. They they said, you're going to mix the record. Robert said, you're going to mix the record. The vibe. I mean, your natural inclinations and the vibe. Like I can totally relate to the whole rough mix vibe and trying to go after that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like so. I mean, that's the yeah. bane of every mix engineer's existence. Like, you get work hard on this mix, they go, I don't know, the rough had something. And you're like, oh, God, not this again. Is it just because totally. you're used to it? Is it because you're used to it? But I, I think with Robert, uh, it wasn't a f- it wasn't demo or rough mixitis because he wasn't living with those rough mixes forever. He was li- literally li- listening to a mix, the rough mix, and then listening to a finished mix, like a matter of like a day later or two days later. Yeah. And he liked the roughs better than like, cause, cause I had to make roughs for him like every day with his vocals because he was in charge of the comps. Like, okay. Yeah. He would do, Robert would always do full takes, sing a song front to back like four or five times. Like, like, and every take would yeah. be like, uh, uh. You know, me and Ross would be in the control and like tears coming down our cheeks. Like, <laughs> like, oh my God. And he's just like, I could do it better. I'm like, okay, no, what? You're crazy. You know, like, and then he would do it. And then so he would, he would make up a comp sheet. I would have to make him five individual rough mixes. Sick. With five different vocal takes or four different vocal takes. And then he would go home at night. We were doing vocals at like four in the morning. He would go home. Of course, Robert Smith, you figure like the, you know, the goth king is doing vocals at four in the morning. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'd get, leave the studio when the sun came up. I would make Robert these rough mixes the next day. He'd take it home. He'd come in the next day. Here's the comp list. I'd comp the vocal. I'd make him another rough mix. He'd take it home, listen, go back to the hotel, listen, and then come back in and go, uh, I think I could do it better. I'm going to do it all over again. Like, what? Dude. And then he and he would he was just this revisionist and I'll be damned if he didn't beat it every single fucking time. Yeah, that's really really sick to hear. And for those listening who maybe aren't familiar with the term, comping is a common recording technique where you essentially compile a set amount of takes and then you choose the sections from each take to make the one take that you like. Now, there's singers that will comp from 20 different takes. There's producers that will limit tracking to four takes that are going to comp from, depending. And so this is what Steve is talking about when he's talking about Robert Smith being in charge of his own comps, meaning he's going through all of his own takes and choosing himself the sections that he would like to use to make up his vocal take for that song. He was very organized. He would have the lyric sheets, handwritten lyrics, and then a little grid with checks on it, like... like next to it like bars and like so the check take one two three four like this line 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 half of this line this word from this line from this take you know stuff like that very specific fascinating 
And I would just That's follow sick to, to the know letter. that he's so hands on. And mm-hmm. uh, how many revisions did those mixes go through? Uh, were there a lot? Was it just With a Robert? normal amount? A couple? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we mixed the whole record in like maybe like 10 days, a week to 10 days, I think. I'm, I'm kind Pretty of saying. Pretty fast. Fast. Uh, we were mixing all through the weekend. I was supposed to, speaking of Miss Machine, so. Miss Machine was made in, in those couple of chunks, but then I went and did that Cure record. Uh-huh. And we hadn't finished the record. I hadn't mixed the record. And I wound up like delaying this, this uh, to, to my detriment, but to the band, whatever. We wound up, they waited for me to mix the record. Originally, they weren't going to, and then the band finally agreed. But uh, So he had to wait for me to finish the Cure to mix Miss Machine. So... I'm mixing all weekend. We're going like super late every night. Uh, Robert's like, hey, I'm like, I have to be, you know, he goes, can you stay through the weekend? Can you stay through Sunday? I was like, Robert, I have to be in New York Monday morning at Quad Studios to mix this Dillinger record. He goes, okay, well, what if I uh, upgrade your, your ticket to first class on Virgin, which has sleepers in it, and you basically can just work and then go to the airport, go to bed, and then wake up in New York, which is what yeah. I did. That was my that was my morning commute from London. I left at 6 a.m. London time at Heathrow. They pick me up, bring me to the airport. I go on the plane, the double decker, the Virgin upstairs with the you know. Yeah. And then they turned down my bed. I went to bed, and I woke up in New York. And then and then they they the Virgin first class comes with a uh, like. Uh, a car service to and from the airport, so I felt very fancy, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, sick. That's but uh, the one that time was my, you wish that, that was flight my was thing. longer. I know. Like he spent all that money, and I basically slept through it, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, but that was my morning commute. I woke. I went to bed in London, and I woke up in New York, like refreshed and like showered at the in at the thing in the the thing in the airport. They have showers there. I showered. I went to the studio, and I started mixing Miss Machine, like that day. <laughs> That's. The fancy life of jet setting that's, producer engineer Steve Evans. Yeah, I, yeah, that's I have. That's about my one of like two stories that's of that fancy. I'm not that fancy. <laughs> I felt very fancy right then and there. I'll tell you that much. That's dope. Um, and so you went and then you mixed Miss Machine straight to it. Well, straight to it, and then, but then this is this is all. See, I I go off on these tangents. So then I do that. I mix the Cure record. I'm in New York mixing Miss Machine, and Robert is on AOL Instant Messenger. We're dating ourselves. He's on AIM. He aims me and goes, <laughs> hey, I need you to come back for some recalls. So I didn't go home. I literally went from I finished mixing a quad in New York. I was staying in New York mixing a quad, uh, and then left quad, got back on the airplane, went back to London, went back to Olympic, and for another week of recalls. Damn. Yeah. That's a heavy, heavy session. Yeah. Real heavy session. Um, What are some studio essentials for you? Are there certain drinks, a certain type of water, uh, anything coffee. that you must have with you? Coffee? Are coffee you a coffee all snob? I'm not a coffee, coffee snob? snob. I'm just, I just coffee. <laughs> I've, turned more into a, co- I've turned more into a coffee snob over the years. 
Okay. But I'm still not these like, uh, oh, I have my Chemex thing and I can't, you know, I can right. only drink with, you know, no. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't go to that level of it. Uh, so y- but, you won't turn your nose to a cup of drip coffee in a styrofoam cup or something like that? Oh, hell no. Okay. You're no. still down to earth then. Yeah. Yes. And do you drink your coffee black or cream and sugar? Or? Uh, I used to drink it cream and sugar, but now uh, I'm quasi-vegan. I don't do uh, I don't do dairy anymore. I still okay. do eggs, but that's it. Um, okay. Besides that, uh, so no dairy. So uh, for a while, I was doing straight black. Um, now I do like there's a lot of great like oat milk and almond milk creamers. That for, I sure. Do. for sure, for uh, sure. Yeah. I usually cut it with something. I'll do it black. You know, I got into black for a while. My wife's really into. She just drinks always black coffee. And then mm-hmm. I really got into it for a while, and I became more of a coffee snob when I was drinking it black because you could actually understand the flavors of different coffees. Right. You know. Totally. And I realized that I I really love dark roasts and not I don't like light roasts at all, even though light roasts have more caffeine. Yeah. I love the thick the thick dark dark roast coffees. Me too. I really love that, especially like a good Ethiopian or a good like Kenyan. Like oh, I love those deep flavors. You know, I love uh, you know groundwork coffee is like one of my favorites. They're they're like it's very solid, very yeah. solid. Yeah, yeah. That's like my favorite, my one of my favorite brands. Uh, we also have the, other- now we have an espresso machine at the house, so the, oh, okay. it's the pods. But that's like really good coffee. Yeah, it's not like the Keurig. The Keurig, I I, I won't. You know what? Honestly. That's one thing, you know, in a pinch, I have, if I have to, yes, but it's like, I'd rather oh, yeah. drink, I'd rather drink, uh, I would rather drink gas station coffee in a styrofoam cup than, than, than Keurig. Same. <laughs> coffee brewed out of plastic cups is fucked up to me. It's just, it just doesn't, I just think it's weak coffee. I just don't think it's good. I think it's not, they're like, oh, you can make it strong. I'm like, no, it doesn't, it never tastes strong to me. It always tastes like weak, weak, weak coffee. Yeah. Um, do what kind of coffee machine do you have at your studio? At the studio, I have a drip coffee maker. I have oh, awesome. a French. Pr- there's a French press here too, if I want to get fancy. <clears throat> but generally, I just have a just a drip coffee maker, a Cuisinart, whatever you know. So th- throughout the day, when you're working there, you're just drinking off of that pot. Oh yeah. Awesome, that's rad. And do you have any other studio snacks or studio essentials? Uh not really. I used to, you know, the funny thing is because I try to like limit my sugar nowadays because I'm older, you know, but totally. I used to always have, I would go to like Smart and Final and like I would get the big, like the things you get from like that, that like the, 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 you know, the convenience stores, like the checkouts, like the big plastic jugs where you, you know, reach in and buy a Tootsie Roll for five cents or whatever. Totally. I would get Tootsie Rolls, Atomic Fireballs. I love those. Uh, like lemon heads. I used to always okay. have candy. I used to have candy constantly here. Now I don't. Yeah. I don't. I don't have any of it because I just like no candy. Get the candy away from me. <laughs> Cutting out the candy is hard, man. Oh, Getting off the sugar is hard. It's tough. I still. If the thing is, I know it because like if I have some of it, if I have a little bit, then it's like it's all bets are yeah. off. If I want a little bit, then I want it all. Yeah. Same. Instantly. It's me. Yeah. It's me fully falling off the wagon. I have, it's hot. I have one, like one cup of frozen yogurt or it's a little bit of dairy free ice cream and it's over. I want it every day, all day. I after want that. it all day long. Give me the whole, <laughs> give me the whole tub. Yeah, dude. Totally, man. Um, so 
when you're doing your own project at your studio, mm-hmm. uh, like, do you, are you the type of person that kind of goes throughout the day as long as you can go because you're always trying to get ahead on scheduling of the record? Or do you have set hours? Do you normally like to work between 12 and 10? Or or what's your kind of vibe with that? Yeah, I, I, you know, the more, the older I get, the more I realize smarter, not harder, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I can still pull a good 15 hour day if I need to. And you know, when you're in the, when you're in the zone, you're like, oh yeah. And you just keep going. But there, there comes a point, you realize there comes a point in diminishing returns. Like, absolutely. You could, you could, it's like, we're trying to hammer this part. It's like, it's like, you know, midnight and we're like, come on, we'll just get it. We'll get it. And then we'll go, we'll get it. And we'll go. It's like, you could stop and go coming in the morning fresh. You'll get it. You'll nail it in one or two takes. And right. it's it'll be so much better. And we won't yeah. be like coming in miserable because we didn't sleep. Yeah. So I've been trying to like do like twelve to ten, like cut it off at ten, you know. It's like a it's basically like an eight, eight and a half hour day. It's like twelve to ten with a with a nice dinner, you know, dinner break. Yeah. So that's totally. that's that feels like the happy place for me now. You know. We'll see on the next project I come I'm, I have coming up, which is going to be a long project. But, uh, um, you know, and I, I haven't done a lot of long projects because of COVID. It's really been like this past year has really been mostly mixing and like very small little, you know, singles and a couple of EPs. But I haven't done a full length in in almost a year and a half now, which is crazy. Wow. Um, yeah. I don't think about it because I've been working. It's not like I haven't been working. I've been working and somehow it's uh, knock wood. I've managed to, you know, be all right during this, this crazy, this crazy time. But, uh-huh. um, yeah, it's been a second. So, uh, I, I mean, you... I just, I've been doing, you know, like I just did another, I just did an EP for this metal band. Like, you know, I, I know, uh, I'm not going to have a problem jumping back in on the full length because, I mean, I just did a, you know, a six song EP, you know, like it's fine, but it's, you know, it's always different. A full length just, it always feels different when you're doing like, oh, it's a few songs. It's like, you don't think about it as much or whatever, even though you really, that should really be the attitude the whole time. But I agree though. I get what you're saying because when you work on a full length, it is still like more of a team endeavor that you end up getting a family vibe with, you know, cause it's mm-hmm. rarely under a month, under a month. So. Oh you know. yeah, for sure. Yeah, I feel you on that. Um, is there any particular meals that you enjoy when you're working? Or are you kind of open? You like variety? You'll eat whatever, kind of go with I'll the, eat whatever, but like I said, I like I said, really the last, it's only really been since um, like six months before lockdown happened that my wife and I went, you know, like I went vegan, full vegan for a while, but then I, I went back to eggs, um, a little bit. Uh, but that's, you know, I used to always love, I mean, I would always love a good, uh, sushi dinner, but yeah. you can't have that every day, obviously. And there happens to be this unbelievable sushi place by the studio. Like a lot of food. Good. A lot of food in Garden Grove in Westminster. Oh, and I was, yeah, and I, I, you know, before the vegan thing, I have to find a good place that's got like a a vegan pho, but there's so much good pho right by, right here. Garden Grove is like, you know, Westminster, that whole area, that little Saigon area is like 
my favorite. Yep. I love a good, but I never really ate the meat. I wasn't really a big even before the um, before I went like no meat. Um, I was not really doing beef. I was doing chicken, so I would do like the full guy, like chicken pho. Yeah, but, um, it's great. I love I love pho. It's hard to not like if you're a human on Earth that likes food. It's hard to not find a version of pho that you like don't really love because noodles and soup is awesome. Period. Mm-hmm. There was this place right by the studio, but unfortunately, they 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 got taken down by by COVID. But there was a place yeah. that was in this complex, literally at the end, like on Garden Grove Boulevard. So I could walk there, and it was like it was like literally one of the best five places around in Garden Grove. And I've been to a ton of them, obviously, because around here, and it was so good. And they just, I saw they they they're gone. I'm like, ah oh, man, it's a such bummer a bum how out. many of our yeah, so many of those restaurants didn't make it. It's such a bum out, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, how you, how has been everybody like on your end, like as far as like dealing with the pandemic and like just being like, you know, just isolated and not and not really working and not touring and not gigging and it's been have you been managing? Tough. Yeah, I mean, it's been tough, but it's been really beneficial for all of us to I think really check our like ego and how it fits into our self identity. And to kind of refigure out like who we are, because I think a lot of it by default without realizing it becomes dependent on the outside world's perception of you or whether you get it through social media or your fans at shows or whatever. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, I think it's been tough for me and a lot of us, but it's been really good. And But on the other side of that, I feel like mostly I'm coming out with gratitude because I look at all the people who have these struggles that aren't of like, well, what do I do with myself? But they're figuring out how do I live? How do I eat? How do I support my family? And I just feel really grateful that I have such a good life, you know, outside know. of whatever Trust trials. Me. So. I mean, uh, the, the, the lockdown has been nothing but great for for my home life i mean yeah because my wife and i know we we've seen the most of each other ever and we've been together for like you know we've only been married we only got we got married last year that was one good thing about covid we got married last year but um you know we've been together almost 10 years and like we don't we never saw this much of each other because like the way her work is she works a regular job like she you know and totally. She would leave the for the office at like six in the morning. You know, we've been living together for since twenty thirteen. So yeah, like going on eight years. Um, yeah. Uh, so she would leave for work, and you know, uh, me being the studio guy, I'm working late. You know, like I'm, you know, I'd see her, I'd give her a kiss in the morning. Oh, okay, why? You know, like. And then, like, she'd go off to work, and I, I would talk to her or text her during the day, and I'd FaceTime her at lunch or at dinner or whatever. And then, like, I'd crawl into bed with her at night. But she was, you know, because she goes to bed, like, early. She's, like, at 8.30. She's in, she's sleeping. You know, she's yeah. usually up at, like, 4, you know. Um, but so now it's, like, she's working, but she's in the next, in our second bedroom. That's her office. And, like, I wake up. I come in there. I give her a kiss. I have some coffee. I talk to her. It's like it's it's been it's it's awesome. I've spent like a lot of time with her. Yeah, that's rad. Yeah, it's been cool for me too. But it's kind of a double edged sword because my partner, she's an ICU nurse, 
And when we were still down in Long Beach, she was working at a hospital in East oh, LA. Man. So for she so. spent like a full year on the front line fighting this COVID war. Oh, and that was a big awesome, motivation f- for us moving out here where it's more mellow and she's at a new hospital. But, um, you know, there was that element of stress, but ultimately it still led me to gratitude and just being like, I'm glad she's okay. I'm okay. She's being a badass. She's yeah, absolutely that's, doing. That's, she's a complete fucking badass for doing that. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And so, um, but aside from that, it's been great because of the amount of time we get to spend together and I'm not on tour. So I'm around to be able to take care of her, cook for her because she come home, she comes home from a 12, 13 hour shift of dealing with a full ICU of just nonstop COVID patients and she's thrashed. So to be around, to be able to cook for her and just take care of basic stuff and stuff that normally when I'm in and out of tour playing shows and stuff, I'm not available for has felt really good too for me. So I'm stoked on the same thing that you're stoked on. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's been cool, but I really appreciate you taking this time to talk to me, Steve. Oh, I, dude, my pleasure. I hope that maybe I can have you on again someday just because we barely scratched the surface. Oh, yeah. Me, I'm, I'm, I was trying to basically not live in fanboy land of you and try to approach <laughs> talking to you as like sort of a peer, uh, but... Well, inside consider, my mind, yeah, yeah. It, it was. I wouldn't difficult consider to do, us bro. anything more than peers. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I appreciate that, but you know, and um, I'm, you know, before, I'm a big fan of you guys as well. Obviously, thank you. That means a lot, man. I really appreciate that. So, dude, drive through um, invasion tour. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, warp tour 2002. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, man. That was uh, important for our band. So. Getting to talk to you and hear some of these inside stories and kind of get a little bit into your mind of how you approach things has been really wonderful for me. So thank you. Yeah, dude, I'm I'm totally, of course, and thank you. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.